I want him to obey the Lord here this morning, don't you? You want him to preach to us? Come on, put your hands forward. Let's pray. God, anoint Brother Sanford this morning. Preach the word, and we'll gladly receive it. Let's give it a good Bendale welcome to this pulpit. Love you, brother. Come on, let's give the Lord some praise in the house this morning. As you clap your hands, why don't you lift your voice? Why don't you give the Lord a shout of triumph in the house this morning? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Do I have any redeemed people in the house this morning? I'm talking about those that God took out of the hands of the enemy. Any redeemed people in the house? Amen. I like the Bible because it says he has redeemed us out of the hands of the enemy. And then Jesus tells us in the New Testament that you're in my hand and no man can pluck you out. Aren't you thankful that the day came when God changed hands? When God took us out of the enemy's hands and now we're in God's hands. And no enemy, no adversary, no person can pluck us out of his hands. Man, it feels good in the house this morning, doesn't it? Amen. It feels like a spirit of revival in the house. And I have no pressure on me today because we've already got one to be baptized. So it doesn't matter how bad I do. We're going to end on a good note, Brother Moore. Amen. Why don't we give the Lord thanks one more time? If the angels rejoice over one soul repenting, what kind of party do you think heaven's going to have in the next 30 to 40 minutes when somebody's baptized? If heaven rejoices, we ought to rejoice. If heaven throws a party, we ought to take it a few minutes and just give God praise. Amen. Amen. And it's good to be with you this morning. And I give honor to Brother Moore and Sister Moore in this great church and all the ministry that's here. And... Um, I'm just going to obey the Holy Ghost this morning, if it's all right. And uh, I'm going to go to Exodus chapter 15, if you have your Bibles. Exodus chapter 15, and I'll read verses 1 and 2. And then we will jump over to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. We could leave service right now and say, man, we had a great service. Because the Spirit of the Lord has moved, and it is moving. But you know, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of the Lord moved upon Samson, and he killed a lion. The Spirit of the Lord moved on David, and he killed Goliath. But there's a precedent set at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. The Bible says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. But the moving of the Spirit did not do a creative work. Because the very next verse, the Bible says, after God's Spirit moved, it then says, and God said. Because I believe the Lord was setting a precedent from the very beginning. My Spirit's going to move. And then I'm going to start talking. And I believe when we join praise and worship, the moving of the Spirit together with God's Word, supernatural things always take place. Amen. And I believe that's what's going to happen this morning. Not because I'm preaching, but because it's God's Word. And He's a God of His Word. He's bound to His Word. So Exodus chapter 1, or 15, excuse me, in verse number 1. The Bible says, Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord. And spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him in habitation. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Matthew chapter 1. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. 
When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily or privately. But while he thought on these things, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which he has conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. And all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, A virgin shall be with child and bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. We're going to baptize somebody in a few minutes in the name of Jesus. We always conclude and end our prayers with, in Jesus' name. Because there's a reason why we put so much emphasis on the name of Jesus. And I'm going to do my best to preach to you about that just for a few moments this morning. And my title today is simply this, Jehovah has become my Jesus. Jehovah has become my Jesus. Why don't we put our Bibles down and why don't we lift our hands and our voices and our hearts one more time. And as we lift our hands and voices, why don't we just begin to continue to stir up the gift of the Holy Ghost that's in this room right now. Lord, we feel your presence in this room still. God, we thank you that you've already made your presence known. Lord, the wind bloweth where it listeth, and we hear the sounds thereof. And God, we're hearing the sounds of your spirit moving in this house. And I pray, Lord, for the next few moments that your spirit would continue to move. That there would be a witness of the Holy Ghost that would begin to move in this house. In Jesus' name, why don't you give the Lord one more great hand clap of praise. Amen. And you may be seated this morning. Thank you for standing. The Bible is a very interesting and fascinating book. It has 66 books, 1,189 chapters, 31,173 verses, and over 774,746 words. There are 18 historical books, 5 poetical books, 17 prophetical books. There are 4 gospels, 22 epistles, 40 authors, 2 covenants, and 1 God who spans both time and eternity. The Bible is a book that is replete with God's timeless promises. It is a book that is full of God's prophetic utterances. But may I also remind you this morning as we begin that while the Bible is full of complex characters, different dispensations, and even a multitude of miracles, it is also a book of songs. And while we understand the Bible is not a songbook, you will find that the Bible is a book that contains at least 185 different songs. Battles and coronations, funerals and cities being sacked and seas splitting up. You can open that Bible this morning and find songs for various kinds of occasions. In fact, 150 of the 185 songs, or 80% of the songs in the Bible are found in one book, the book of Psalms, which happens to be the songbook for the nation of Israel. We then have the Song of Solomon, which we understand to be the famous love song between a bride and a groom. We have the book of Lamentations, which at its origin, and when you begin to study it intently, is a set of five diaries or songs that mourn the fall of Jerusalem. The longest song in the Bible, if you want to take the time to look it up, is found in Psalm 119. It contains 1,732 words. The shortest song or songs in the Bible are found 
in 2 Chronicles chapters 5 and 20, and they only contain seven words. But when you really begin to take the time and study of the various kinds of songs, from Genesis to Revelation, you find out that some songs stand out above other songs. I am reminded of the song of Deborah this morning because it was sung by the prophetess Deborah herself in Judges chapter 5 after the Lord gave she and Barak victory over the Canaanites. Judges chapter 5, the Bible says, Deborah begins to sing to praise you the Lord for avenging Israel when the people willingly offered themselves. She says, Hear, O ye king, and give hear, O ye princesses. I Even I will sing unto the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. We then have the song of David, which was sung after David defeats the man Goliath. Because in 1 Samuel 18, the Bible says, The woman comes out of all of the cities of Israel singing and dancing uh, with tabrets and with joy and with instruments of music. And the women uh, answered one another as they played and said, Saul uh, has slain his thousands, uh, but David his ten thousands. Uh, we've even got the song of Jehoshaphat because it's in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 20 when the Bible says, uh, after he consulted with the people, uh, he then appoints singers unto the Lord uh, that they should praise the beauty of holy holiness unto the Lord and as they go out into the battle they were then commanded to sing these words praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever and if there is a song to be sung more than ever before it is the song of Jehoshaphat ladies and gentlemen because aren't you thankful that that song is true it's more than just lyrics on a song page but his mercy does endure forever we then have the song of Paul and Silas because it's in Acts 16. They have been thrown into prison for preaching and casting out a spirit of divination. But at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them and the doors came open. Ladies and gentlemen, can I pause right here and tell you this morning? Can I pause and remind us of what we already know? This is one of the reasons. This is one of the various reasons why we still come together and sing songs unto the Lord. Can I tell you what we've done for the last 40 to 45 minutes was more than just a filler portion of the service. But when Brother Troy and all these singers were singing and leading us into worship, it's more than just something we do to kind of pass the time until the preaching. But something powerful and something supernatural happens when people of the name come together and begin to sing praises unto that name. This is why the book of Psalms tells us, I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praises unto your name. This is why the Bible says to praise the Lord and to sing unto the Lord a new song. Give praise in the assembly of the faithful and every Sunday and every Sunday night and every Wednesday night. That is exactly what you and I do. We make up our mind but the more I'm going to the assembly of the faithful and I'm going to give God praise and worship because he's worthy. Can I tell you whether you're in the house today and you're like Deborah or the women of Israel and you're giving praise for what he's already done or you're in this house today and you're like Jehoshaphat or Paul and Silas and you're praising for what God is yet to do regardless of which way you give God praise for a past victory or a future victory something begins to happen and something begins to transform and something miraculous can take place when people come together and begin to sing songs unto the Lord. This is why the Bible is brimful of powerful songs. However, I want to focus for a few moments on the first song ever to be recorded in the Bible. It is what the Bible calls the Song of Moses. And it's amazing to know that Moses sings the first song in the Bible, Genesis 15, and he also has the last song in the Bible, Revelation 15. But I want to focus for a few moments this morning on Exodus 15, the Bible's first song, the Song of Moses. We understand that it happens after one 
of the Bible's greatest miracles. God is part of the Red Sea, and Israel walks across on dry land, escaping Pharaoh's army. And when the Egyptians begin to pursue them, the same waters that are standing up like a heap, God then rescinds those very waters and drowns the entire army in the Red Sea. And this is why in Exodus 15, Moses begins to sing and say, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider hath he thrown into the sea. He said, the Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him an habitation. He said, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host hath he cast into the sea. His captains are drowned in the Red Sea. He said, the depths have covered them. They sank in the bottom as a stone. Thy right hand, O Lord, is glorious in power. Thy right hand has dashed in pieces the enemy. And for 19 verses, he begins to sing praises unto a God, unto the God who just gave them victory over the Egyptians. Ladies and gentlemen, it is, in my estimation, the song that stands out above any other song in the Bible. I know the Song of Solomon was called the Song of Songs, not meaning that it's the greatest song ever to be written, but when the Bible calls the Song of Solomon the Song of Songs, it has given us indication that is the greatest song Solomon ever wrote. But it's my opinion that the greatest song ever to be written in the Bible and since the Bible is in Exodus 15. In fact, it is the first 13 words of verse number 2 that stands out more than anything else. And I'm convinced when you understand where I'm going this morning, you too will leave this sanctuary with the same understanding and the same conclusion that those 13 words are the greatest lyrics ever to be composed and written down for a song. Moses says, the Lord is my strength. The Lord is my song. And He has become my salvation. But can I tell this congregation that Moses wasn't the only one to sing those words. He wrote the song, Brother Troy. He was the first one to sing the song. But years later, here comes the sweet psalmstress of Israel, a man named David. And in Psalm 118, he says the same words. He says, the Lord is my strength and song and has become my salvation. But it wasn't just Moses and it wasn't just David. But years after David, here comes the prophet but Isaiah in Isaiah 12 and 2 because he said behold God is my salvation I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song he also is my salvation ladies and gentlemen I cannot stress the fact enough that three men who lived at different times in life all said the same words they all said the Lord is my strength the Lord is my song. The Lord has become my salvation. And when you really begin to look at those lyrics from a Hebrew understanding, you then begin to see the beauty of what Moses, David, and Isaiah were all singing. Because if you notice in every instance, the word Lord is in all caps. Now that's not a transliterational error because anytime you see the word Lord in all caps, that is referring to God's covenant name with His people. It's what the Jews called the Tetragrammaton. It's his covenantal name. It's where we get the word Yahweh or Jehovah. It literally translates to mean the self-existent or the eternal. It's used over 6,800 times in the Bible. So anytime the word Lord is in all caps, it means the eternal or Jehovah. So Moses, David, and Isaiah are saying that Jehovah is my strength. And I don't know about you, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm thankful that David, Moses, and Isaiah all reiterated the fact that Jehovah is my strength. Because here's reality. There's going to be days when you wake up and you don't have strength. 
There's going to be days when you wake up and it's a struggle to come to church and it's a struggle to lift your hands. There's going to be days when it's a struggle to have faith in God. But aren't you thankful it's in those moments that the eternal God, Jehovah himself said, when you don't have the strength you need, I will become the strength that you need. And aren't you glad that they go on to tell us that he's not just our strength, but he's our song. And you better mark it down just as sure as there will be days when you don't have strength. There's also going to be days when you don't have a song. There's going to be days when you have no song to sing. And there's going to be days when it's hard to praise and it's hard to worship. But aren't you thankful that the same God who can become your strength is the same God who can become your song? Because it was David who said, you're going to compass me with songs of deliverance. You're going to give me songs in the night. Aren't you thankful when you have no song and you have no strength? The eternal God, Jehovah himself, says what you do not have and what you cannot possess. That is exactly what I will become. I'll become your strength. I'll become your song. This is where we get to the sermon. And this is where it gets really good for us oneness apostolics. Because Moses, David, and Isaiah not only say Jehovah is our strength and Jehovah is our song, but they say something powerful to close it off. Jehovah has become my salvation. And when you continue looking at that song, that verse in the Hebrew language, that word salvation translates to the word Yeshua. And Yeshua is very familiar around us apostolics because Yeshua is where we get the word Jesus. So do you know what Moses, David, and Isaiah were all singing? They were saying that Jehovah is my strength and Jehovah is my song. But then they said there's a day coming when Jehovah is going to become my Jesus. They were singing about a day when the invisible was going to become visible. They were singing about a day when the eternal was going to step out of eternity and step into time. They were singing about a day when Jehovah God, the eternal, the self-existent, was going to become our salvation. They were singing about a day that Jehovah God is going to become our Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, pop has their songs. Country music has their songs. Rock and roll has their songs. And the genre is a million miles long. But I've come to tell you that the church, the apostolic church, Brother Moore, has a song that's greater than all of those songs. It is a song of prophecy. It is a song of understanding. It is a song that we can stand and declare that he's my strength. He's my song, but he's also my Jesus. He has become my salvation. Do you know this is exactly what the angel is implying to Joseph in Matthew 1? Now the Bible says Joseph was a just man, meaning he was just a good guy. And so he finds himself between a rock and a hard place because he's about to marry a woman that's pregnant with a child that's not his. And so the Bible says when he thought on these things, he decided, I'm going to put her away privately or privately. I'm not going to humiliate her. I'm not going to make her a public example. I'm not, going to let, I'm not going to do this where people can run her down. But while he thought on these things, here comes the angel of the Lord in a dream, saying, Joseph, fear not, for that which is born of Mary is born of the Holy Ghost. Joseph, I know that that baby's not yours, but I've got some more bad news. That baby's not yours to name either. Because the name's already been predetermined. You're going to name him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. Do you know what the name Jesus literally means? It literally means Jehovah Savior or Jehovah Salvation or Jehovah has become salvation. So ladies and gentlemen, the moment that Jesus was born in that manger, the moment that Jesus took breath for the first time, it was in that moment that the song of Moses and the song of David and the song of Isaiah 
came into fulfillment. It was a song hundreds of years in the making. But the day that Jesus was born, that was the day, ladies and gentlemen, that Jehovah had stepped out of eternity and stepped into time. That was the moment that Jehovah had become my Jesus. An even greater understanding of this is in John chapter 1, verse 1, and then in John chapter 1, verse 14. Now, I love the gospel of John, and I'm not elevating one over the other. You know my, you understand what I'm saying. The gospel of John is unique compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke because John only records certain miracles that point to the divinity of Jesus. Everything that John writes and records points back to the fact that Jesus is more than a man. You've got to understand that John writes his gospel at the turn of the first century. All 11 other disciples have been martyred. John is the only one alive. He survived being boiled. He survived being exiled to Patmos. And you do history and church history, you find out that John leaves Patmos and goes to Ephesus and he becomes the bishop over the church of Ephesus and he kind of becomes a mentor to Timothy. So you've got to understand that John is the last disciple alive. It's 70 years since Pentecost. It's 70 years since Jesus ascended back into heaven. And if you know anything about church culture and church history, at the turn of the first century is when agnosticism began to creep its way into the church. And people began denying the fact that Jesus was really the Messiah. They began to come to the conclusion that, well, he was a good teacher or he was a good man, but he wasn't God in flesh. This is why John, from the very beginning of his gospel, is on a mission to prove that Jesus is and was who he said he is and was. This is why in John 1 and 1, John doesn't go back to the New Testament. He goes all the way back to creation in Genesis 1. Because in John 1 and 1, John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John in 1 and 14, he says, And the Word, which was God, was made flesh or another translation says and the word became flesh now you got to get this John says in the beginning was the word the plan the logos the intent and the word was with God and the word was God they're inseparable you cannot separate the word from God because the word was God and then John clears it all up in verse 14 when he says and the word was made flesh or the Word became flesh. Or another translation, the Word became tabernacled in flesh. Because there were some that said, well, Jesus is just a good man. He's not God. And then there were, there were others that were saying, no, Jesus was divine flesh. They're both on the opposite ditches of the extreme. John was trying to tell them, Brother Troy, that no, you both have it wrong. He was a man, but he was also God. This is why it's powerful, John's gospel. Because John in 1 and 14, he says, and the word became flesh, or the word was made flesh. But there is an identical syntax in John chapter 2. There's a marriage at Cana of Galilee. We know the story. They run out of wine. It's amazing because the first miracle ministry of Jesus, the miracle ministry of Jesus begins with a three-day miracle. And the last miracle of his ministry ends with a three-day miracle. And they both have to do a wine. The first one, he turns water into wine. The second one, he says, I'm going to die, be buried, and resurrect, and I'm going to send you the new wine. Because the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine is more than just water becoming wine. It is symbolic and a foreshadowing of the day of Pentecost. But watch this. There's identical language between John 1 and John 2. Because in John 1 and 14, the Word was made flesh, or the Word became flesh. But then in John chapter 2, the Bible says, and the water was made wine, or the water became wine. It's identical language, ladies and gentlemen, because when the water became wine, the water did not cease to exist. 
But the water was contained in the wine. You see, when the water became wine, the water was just taken on a dimension that it did not have prior to becoming wine. The water was still in the wine. And in the parallel language, the Word became flesh. The Word was made flesh. Or the Word was tabernacled in flesh. Because when the Word which was God became flesh, it didn't stop being the Word. But the Word which was God was contained in the flesh. Because ladies and gentlemen, here's what's so powerful about oneness when the word became flesh the word or God was taken on a dimension of being that he did not have prior to becoming flesh this is why John goes on to tell us in John 1:18, he hath declared him who's the he God who's the him Jesus John said the only way God or Jehovah could declare Jesus is Jehovah had to become Jesus because the word declared literally means to fully explain. So when Jehovah the word became Christ the man, the flesh, he was explaining who Jesus was going to be. This is why 2 Corinthians 5, 19 is so powerful and we're going somewhere, I promise. To wit that God was in Christ Reconciling the world, not unto themselves, but God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself. Christ the or God the Spirit, God the Word was in Christ the man. God became a man, but just because He became a man doesn't mean He stopped being God. That's why everywhere Jesus went, miracle signs and wonders happened. And Jesus one day says, Don't you marvel at what I do? It's not me who does the work, it's my Father that dwells in me. He does the work. This is why that word became can be translated to the word tabernacle. Because when God became flesh or when God was made flesh or when God was tabernacle in flesh, it's not giving us the inclination that God became a man and stopped being God. It's just like all you men this morning, when you put on your jacket, you became tabernacled by that jacket. That doesn't mean you became the jacket. That means you're just wearing the jacket. And so when God became flesh, He didn't stop being God to become a man. He just put on humanity. And he zipped it up and said, I may be humanity on the outside, but there's divinity and deity on the inside. And every man, I feel my Holy Ghost this morning. Everything, and you got on it this morning, everything you see in the tabernacle plan was a foreshadowing of what Jesus was going to be in the New Testament. If you've never studied the tabernacle, you owe it to yourself to study the tabernacle. I'll give you an example of why the tabernacle is very important. I've read, you got to be careful what you read, but I've read that in our galaxy alone, there's about, I don't know, several hundred billions of stars in our galaxy, our Milky Way. And that's just one. There's a lot of others. So billions, maybe trillions of stars and the Bible covers it in five words. He created the stars also. Five words to take care of billions and trillions of stars. He created the stars also. But there's 40 chapters on the tabernacle. Because God wants us to know I care more about your soul than I do the stars. I care more about getting you to heaven than I do about all the stars and all the Milky Ways and galaxies. This is why when you study the tabernacle, the tabernacle was laid out in the form and shape of a cross because everything was pointing to that day at Calvary. But I'll prove it to you. When they began to build or when God got ready to talk to Moses about building this, he said, you can't build this tabernacle any way you want to build it, but you've got to build it after the pattern that I've already established in heaven. So what's as in heaven, so it is in earth. So they begin to build the tabernacle, and God says, you got to use certain wood, you got to use certain badger skins, you got to use certain colors. But God was very adamant about the fact that the outward structure of the tabernacle had to be made with wood. And I'm sure all those Amorites and Hittites and Jebusites and all those otherites didn't really understand the big deal about a wooden structure in the middle of a wilderness. God said, while the outward may be wood, you're going to overlay the inward with gold. There's even going to be a golden ark of the covenant. 
all they see is the wood. But inside that one structure is a golden ark of the covenant, which is symbolic of God's glory, the Shekinah presence of God. And can I tell you, everything the tabernacle was in the Old Testament was a foreshadowing. It was a direction point to what Jesus was going to be in the New Testament because the wood of the tabernacle referenced the humanity of Jesus. But the gold inside the tabernacle was a reference to the deity inside of Jesus. This is why you can read 2 Corinthians like this. God the gold was in Christ the wood. This is why when Jesus went around everywhere, nobody understood the big deal. You're just the son of Mary, the brother of James and John and Joseph. They didn't understand because all they were looking at was the wood. But what they failed to realize is there's gold inside that man. There's the Shekinah glory presence of God. The same glory and the same presence that you worship in a replica of a box of the Ark of the Covenant is the same glory and the same presence that's inside that man. This is why Isaiah 53, 1 through 2 is so powerful because once again, Isaiah the prophet is giving us another messianic prophecy about Jesus. He asked the question, who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Boy, I wish I had time to talk about the arm of the Lord. Because the arm of the Lord is Jesus. But he says, for he, speaking of Jesus, shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. Watch this. He's talking about Jesus. He said he's going to have no form nor comeliness. And when you see him, there will be no beauty that we should desire him. Isaiah is stressing the fact that when Messiah comes, there's going to be nothing special about him. In terms of appearance. Just like there was nothing special in terms of appearance about that tabernacle. He said there's going to be no form nor comeliness. Meaning, when you look at him, there's going to be nothing majestic about him. Just like there was nothing majestic about that tabernacle. He said when you look at him, there's going to be no beauty that we should desire him. There's going to be nothing physically attractive about Jesus because he's just going to be a common man. And the Jews still missed it. Because in their mind, their Messiah was supposed to ride in on a horse, destroy and conquer the Roman government. But they missed it. Isaiah told them, there's going to be nothing special. He's going to blend in with everybody else until the day comes that ministry starts. Can I tell you that I've, I've done a little research? And the average male height in biblical times was between 5'1 to 5'5. Five, five. That'll make a lot of us feel good. And I've even read that theologians believe that Jesus was about 5'3". Because there was nothing special about him in terms of appearance. I, this is why I laugh at all these paintings of, G, of modern Jesus now. They got him all smooth skin and flowing hair and he looks all prettied up. That's not what Jesus looked like. The people say that Jesus was tall, dark, and handsome. He was short, dark, and rugged. Because he worked in a carpenter shop. He was a man's man. He worked with his hands every single day. And people pass that carpenter shop looking for Messiah. And while they're looking for Messiah, Messiah's in that carpenter shop working in obscurity. Because there's going to be nothing special about him. But can I tell you, just like that tabernacle, there was something inside of that man. And when it was time to step into ministry, the purpose of why God became a man began to unfold. Because just like that tabernacle, there was something inside the walls of that building. Just like the man Jesus, he may have been a man on the outside, but there was God and gold on the inside. This is why 1 Timothy 3 and 16 is so pivotal. Because when it says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness Paul never says great is the mystery of the Godhead he said great is the mystery of godliness God was manifest in the flesh God was justified in the spirit there's only one subject we're talking about God God was in the flesh he was justified in the spirit seen of angels priests unto the Gentiles believed on in the world and received up in the glory Paul reiterates the fact that God was manifest it's the same word John used in John 1.18 when he said he has declared him. Manifest literally means he has made him fully known. And I got a lot of preaching to do, but I got this thought the other day, Brother Moore. He was, God was, seen of angels. Now I want you to get this. God is spirit, right? Even Jesus himself said God is spirit. 
No man can see God. No man has ever seen God. That spirit is invisible. So we've established, the, in fact, Jesus goes on to say the spirit has not flesh and bones. This is why God had to become a man, because spirit cannot die, and spirits cannot bleed. So God had to put on humanity to take care of the job. But God is invisible. God is spirit. And the Bible also says God is light. In him is there no darkness. God is pure, unadulterated, holy light. So when God created the angels, they never saw him. Because God is light. God is spirit. God is invisible. So for, and we can argue about how long it was between God created angels and man, and we can do that till we're blue in the face. But the fact is, Millennia had passed and they had never seen him because God is invisible, God's spirit, God's light. So maybe this is why when Jesus is born in the New Testament, when God has now become man, you know where I'm going, there's an angelic choir that begins to sing in the heavens. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Why are they singing? Why are they shouting? Why are they so excited? Could it be, Brother Moore, for the first time they see him? Could it be for the first time they're looking into the face of the very one? I know it's a man. I know it's a baby. But they had the understanding that the same God that created us and created everything else is the same God that resides. Ladies and gentlemen, when Jesus was born, that was the moment Jehovah became salvation or Jehovah became Jesus. And what's amazing about that word salvation, translating to the word salvation, I'm hurrying. What's amazing about that word salvation, translating to Yeshua or Jesus, it brings a whole new understanding and brand new revelation to a lot of those Old Testament verses we love to quote. What about uh, Psalm 27 and 1? When the Bible says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Again, the word Lord is Jehovah, and the word salvation is Jesus. So let's just translate it and put it in our vernacular. The psalmist would be saying this, Jehovah is my light and my Jesus. Whom shall I fear? Because ladies and gentlemen, you get a revelation of who Jesus is, there's nothing else to be afraid of. You get a revelation that Jesus and the Creator are one and the same, there's nothing else to fear in this life or in the life to come. This is why Isaiah says in Isaiah 12 and 3, Therefore with joy shall you draw waters out of the wells of salvation. But let's translate it. Therefore with joy are you going to draw waters out of the wells of Jesus. And then he goes on to say, And in that day, what day? The day Jesus walks the earth. You're going to say, praise the Lord or praise Jehovah. Call upon his name. Declare his doings among the people. Make mention his name is to be exalted. That verse along with several other verses are just one of the examples as to why we apostolics put so much emphasis on the name of Jesus. Because the prophet Isaiah said there's a day coming when you're going to draw waters out of the wells of Jesus. And in that day, you're going to say, praise Jehovah. Call upon his name. What is his name? His name is Jesus. And you're going to declare his doings among the people. And you're going to make mention his name is to be exalted. That's why Paul said, wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you understand the power of Philippians 2? When he said that name's been exalted above every name that is named in this world and in the world to come. That's why cancer does not intimidate me. That's why words like trigger words today like depression and anxiety don't intimidate me or God. Because the moment you label it, the moment you put a name on it, that name is now in subjection to that name. 
it would be better that they didn't label it. It would be better that they didn't name it. Because the moment you identify something, the moment you put a name on it, that name is in subjection to that name. And if you've got cancer, it's in subjection. If you're battling with anxiety, it's under God's feet. If you've got sugar diabetes and the list goes on, it's ends of subjection because everything that's named has been put under his feet. That's the power. That's why when people come to churches, they say, I'm a drug addict. I'm not worried about it. Because that name is in subjection to that name. Label it what you want to label it. Call it what you want to call it. Come up with the most depraved word that you can think of. But the moment you put a label on it, the moment you identify it, it is now in subjection to that name that's been exalted. I don't know your need today. But I know a name that's greater than your need. And God will not always reveal everything to the ministry. But when God is silent about the need, we've got a name that we've got we can call on. We've got a name that we can speak over it. We've got a name that we can declare over it. Because Isaiah said there's a day coming when you're going to declare his doings among the people and you're going to make mention that his name is exalted. He said there's a day coming when you're going to draw water from the well of salvation from Jesus. That's why John 4 is so powerful. Jesus says, you Jews don't want to go to Samaria, but I must need to go through Samaria because I've got to fulfill Isaiah 12. Jesus goes to Jacob's well and sits down, and you want to talk about a powerful word picture. There's a well sitting on a well. The well of salvation sits down at the well of Jacob. And here comes this woman who's been married five times and lived with a sixth. She's looking for satisfaction. This is why Isaiah told us that a thirsty man will dream and he will have, his soul will have appetite, but when he wakes up, his soul still thirsts. Because you cannot satisfy spiritual needs with fleshly substitutes. The well of salvation sits down. Jesus is man number seven. The number seven means completion. Do you know what happened in that lady's life? The well of salvation sat down. And he said, lady, I'm not talking about the well of Jacob because that's natural water. That's water that will thirst you for an hour or two, but you'll be thirsty in a few minutes after that. But if you begin to drink of my water, you'll never thirst again. This is why John goes on to tell us in John chapter 7 that Jesus said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink because he that believeth on me, as the scripture have said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But thus he spake of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given. He looked at this woman and said, if you'll drink of my water, you'll never look for satisfaction anywhere else. Because Jesus became man number seven. He became completion. And can I tell somebody in this room, if you're looking for completion, don't look anywhere else, but come to the wells of salvation. All you've got to do is draw from the wells of Jesus. That's exactly what happens when you get salvation. You get liberty, deliverance, and prosperity. Because when you repent, you experience deliverance. When you're baptized, you experience liberty. You receive the Holy Ghost, you experience prosperity. And Moses, David, Isaiah all said, He's not just my strength and song. He's going to become my salvation. Meaning that it's personal. He can become anything you need him to become. In this house. This is why gospel, the gospel of John is so powerful in my opinion. Because John is the only writer who records those seven I am statements of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke do not record those I am statements. But John does. He records all seven. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life. The way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. You ever notice when Jesus would kind of say those I am statements? Well, the Jews would get mad. To the point that they wanted to kill him. Now, what's the big deal? The big deal is it's invisible in the English language. But it's visible in the ancient language. 
Because the language that Jesus was using, he wasn't just saying, I am, I am, I am, because that's not very good grammar. He was saying the words, ego or ego, I me. And every time he said that, Jews wanted to kill him. Why? Because you've got to go back to the day that Moses stands before a burning bush. And he asked the question, who do I tell Pharaoh that sent me? That moment, here comes a voice from that burning bush. The most important moment in the history of the Jews. Because that God has now given himself a name. You tell Pharaoh, the I am has sent you. You tell Pharaoh, I am that I am. Or I will be what I will be. It literally means the eternal, the self-existent. It means Yahweh or Jehovah. So now jump out of the New Old Testament, go back to the New Testament, and now there's this random carpenter casually walking up and down the streets of cities using the Old Testament covenant name of God. And the Jews want to kill him. Why do they want to kill him? Because you've got to understand, after they went into exile, Nebuchadnezzar came in, took them for 70 years into slavery. We know the story. Because Israel kept a-whoring after strange gods, the Bible said. God said, I tell you what, I'm going to take you into captivity for 70 years and they'll see if you kind of straighten your act up. So after they come out of captivity, they were so superstitious that they outlawed common people using the Old Testament name of God. A total prohibition. If you're not a priest or a high priest, you cannot say Yahweh or Jehovah because they were so scared that they were going to offend God and he was going to put them back into slavery. That's why thou shalt not take the Lord thy God's name in vain means more than just don't cuss. It literally means don't say you've got my name over you and then don't live like it. That's what got them in trouble. Because you were, God was saying, you've got my name on you. You're a part of my covenant people. You've got my covenantal name called over you. But you're a whoring after all these other gods. That's why he said, you're taking my name in vain. And so the Jews said, well, if we don't even use that name, we won't be in trouble. Until they got to the point where they said, now the people and the priests can't say it. Until finally, there was a total prohibition for even the high priest. They could not say the name of Yahweh or Jehovah. What they would say is Adonai or Hashem, which means the name. They would say the two words, the name, but they would not say the name. So when Jesus walks the earth, I want you to get this. It's been over 300 years since a Jew has heard somebody say the name of God. And now, here's this random carpenter casually walking up and down the street using the name of God. And that's why they want to kill him. And that's why they want to stone him because they think he's blaspheming the name of Jehovah. But can I tell everybody in this room, Jesus had a right to use that name because it was his name to use. This is why Jesus looks at them one day and says, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, ego I me. And the Jews don't get it because they say, you're not even 50 years old yet. How were you there before Abraham? And Jesus looks at them and says, you're just looking at the wood. You're looking at the external. But there's something internal. There's something inside of me that was the same voice that called him out of the earth, the Chaldees. The same God that's talking to you is the same God that told Abraham, ever place your footsteps, I'll give it to you. That's why Jesus goes on to say, if you believe not that I am he, you're going to die in your sins. If you don't believe that I am Jehovah God in the flesh, you're going to die in your sins. That's why Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then are you going to know I am Maybe that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I've determined not to know anything else among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Can I tell everybody in this room, that's why we do everything in the name of Jesus. That's why Colossians says, whatsoever you do in word or in deed. That's why we pray in that name. And that's why in just a few moments, we're going to baptize somebody in that name. That's why we do everything. Because when you call on the name of Jesus, you're getting more than a carpenter. When you call on the name of Jesus, you're getting more than just a five foot three Jew. When you call on the name of Jesus, you're getting the self-existent, the eternal. You're getting the Jehovah God himself. And as you remain standing right now, 
That's why in this room in the next few minutes, regardless of what the need is, you can lift your hands and call on that name. And everything God is manifests at that moment. I was listening to a debate some time ago between apostolic pastor and a pastor of a different denomination. And that other pastor looked at that apostolic pastor, Brother Moore, and he said, he said, uh, you apostolics only have a couple subjects to preach. His point was, you're very shallow in the Bible. You're shallow in theology. And so I'm listening to this debate going back and forth, and it was on the name of Jesus. Why we put so much emphasis on the name of Jesus. And his point was, we're, we're more inspirational than we are informational. We'd rather shout and dance around the aisles than get in that book and read it and study it. He said, you've only got two or three subjects to preach, and I immediately disagreed. Because I thought, we don't have two or three subjects to preach. We've got one. Because Paul said in him, we live, we move, and we have our being. We only have one subject to preach, ladies and gentlemen. We preach Jesus. Because when you begin to preach Jesus, you get everything that's in this book. Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Why do you think Jesus said, I am the bread of life? He was going all the way back to Genesis 1. He was going to be the very thing John talked about in John 1. When you preach Jesus, you get everything in this book. You preach Jesus, you get the same God that parted the Red Sea. You preach Jesus, you get the same God that rained manna from the sky. You preach Jesus, you get the same God that allowed water to come out of a rock and the walls of Jericho to fall and the enemies of Israel to fall by a sword. I'm preaching about one name. I'm preaching about one God who's given himself a name that's greater than any name. They can make their way to the keyboard this morning and they, if they would like. On my ride down this morning, I was wondering, trying to seek after the Lord, what I need to preach. I began to think, you know what? There's probably going to be people in that room that need a healing in their body. I could have preached about Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. But then I thought, you know, I'm sure there's other people in the room that may need provision or a financial miracle. Well, I could preach about Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who provides. And then I thought, well, there may be others that need victory in some area of their life. I could preach about Jehovah Nisi. And then I thought, you know, there may be some dealing with troubled minds and discouragement, anxiety maybe. And I could have preached about peace, Jehovah Shalom. There may be people there that feel like they're all by themselves and nobody cares about them. I could have preached about Jehovah Shammah, the Lord who's always there, and the list goes on and on. But I thought, you know what? Why don't I just preach Jesus? Because when I preach Jesus, he can become healing on this side of the building and at the same time become provision on this side of the building. Brother Moore, if I preach Jesus, he could be victory in the front of the building. Just as much as he could be peace in the back of the building. Because ladies and gentlemen, when you preach Jesus, you get miracle signs and wonders. When you preach Jesus, you get healings and you get deliverance and you get salvation. You preach Jesus, you get everything that God is. That's why that angel said you got to call him Jesus. Because it literally means Jehovah has become salvation. The good news is this morning he can become anything you need in this house. And as we lift our hands all over this room this morning, I wonder as our hands are lifted, we could just begin to call on that name. As our hands are lifted, I wonder if we could just begin to speak that name over things. You ought to speak that name with authority over any sickness or disease. You ought to speak that name over every family situation or trouble. You ought to speak that name over every prodigal, every lost loved one. Speak it over every question. Speak it over every ounce and spirit of confusion. 
Come on, if you need something from the Lord as they begin to play, you ought to step out of your pews this morning. And you ought to walk to this front with a confidence that you've got a God that you can call on right now. You ought to approach the throne with boldness because you know who He is. You know what that name is. You know what comes with that name. Come on, begin to speak that name right now. Come on, you don't know what to pray, just call on his name. Come on, I feel him in the house because you can't talk about him without God showing up. You can't preach about this God without him showing up. His power and presence is moving in the house. There's a name that you can call on When things are going wrong There's a rock that you can speak to If you're weak, it'll make you strong And though the road is long, the sun is hot You don't have to be afraid Just call on the Come name, on, call on that name. of Jesus There's a blessing all the way Oh, what a name, that wonderful name of Jesus. Such a sweet, refreshing sound. It'll pick you up when you are down. Oh, what a name has been given under heaven. I can wash away since then. Oh, what a name. Oh, what a name. Somebody call the name. Such a sweet, refreshing 
together for the name. Hallelujah. If you didn't have any revelation about the name or the oneness of God, Hallelujah. you ought to have something today. My, my, my. He preached us in this house this morning. Folks, he's fed us. That's the reason we're kind of we're like, you know, have you ever really sat down to a real full course meal, cornbread, beans? I'm talking about the works. And when you waddled away from the table, you kind of that's what we're doing this morning. I'm telling you spiritually, man, because he had just fed us. We're so full. We, really, we don't even really have a clue really what else hit us this morning. Because it's hit us in such a way with a revelation. Folks, I'm telling you something about this name. You know, they can say what they want to, but it's in the name. Amen. If you want deliverance, if you want salvation, if you want healing, if you want protection, if you want guidance, it's in the name. I'm a, I thank God for the word I've heard this morning. Amen. If you would gather us... Man, the fellowship, Paul, we fix and go back there and baptize Laney and Jaden. Amen. And so we're looking forward to that. God's been blessing them. Hey, it's, it's just amazing how God, even from Wednesday night to the, this morning, how all of the things has been said and how it's just unfolded. And, and I promise you, if we'd have had a baptismal tank in here, we'd have done it a while ago. <laughs> Amen. Because that'd have been the ideal time. But, but let's go over there. This is part of the transition we have to do now. But maybe in that new building, we won't, there ain't going to be no maybe. Amen. We're not going to have to do this in that new building. Building. Praise God. All right. Love you. Appreciate you. See you in just a second.